this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by BizBuySell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google business for sale. What comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be BizBuySell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it by going to bizbysell.com slash built. That's bizbysell.com forward slash built. Okay, so this is a first for Built to Sell Radio. I think this is our first billion dollar exit. I can't recall any of our last episodes that have had such an outstanding exit as you're going to hear from Cindy Whitehead, who sold her business, Sprout Pharmaceuticals, for a cool $1 billion. The story is going to amaze you, and it's got some twists and turns, but there are a lot of lessons inherent within it. A couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, listen to Cindy's talk comments around accepting shares for your company. Hint, never do it. Uh, I love the way she vetted her potential investors. She talks a little bit about something called dilution dilemma and how to get your head over that. Listen to her and the way she talks about forecasting, both her own forecasts as well as the acquirer's forecasts and the way they kind of played a role in driving up the value of her business. Listen to the way she structured her performance incentives post-sale because she went beyond the traditional best efforts, and I think that was really good, valuable advice from Cindy, um, and why companies should never be managed by a spreadsheet. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Cindy Whitehead. Cindy Whitehead, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You are the inventor of the female Viagra. <laughs> As the media likes to call it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this has to, when I got the show notes and I'm reading through like who I'm going to be interviewing today, I'm like, are you kidding me? The female Viagra? <laughs> this is this doesn't get any better than this. This product was called Addy. Is that am I getting that right? That's right. You are. First ever drug approved for sexual desire in women. So I usually ask, so like, how did the business come about? What was your big idea? <laughs> so what was your big idea? Uh, my big idea is that I had previously built a company with one of the male sexual health drugs, made that a great success, and was just confounded that there was nothing for women. There were 26 different FDA approved drugs for men. These are things before like we Viagra, ever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, Cialis, the testosterone products, and on and on for various male sexual dysfunctions. And yet until we broke through in 2015, not a single one for women. Was this, like, did you ever get squeamish talking about this subject? 
Um, absolutely not. I'm Irish Catholic. It's in my blood. <laughs> my mother wishes I wouldn't say that, but people do say, how did you go into sexual medicine, Cindy? And I say, yeah, Irish Catholic. No, really, I didn't. And let me tell you why. Um, I say it sort of jokingly now because we often joke about sex, right? Sex is a punchline and in cocktail party banter, et cetera. And yet really it's fundamental to who we are. Um, and how we exist in this world. Not only our own you know, confidence and mojo, et cetera, but really our, the intimacy in our relationships. And I had been in that field for some time. The science actually in that field is spectacular because it's relatively new understandings. And so uh, it was really a very cool place for me to be. And when you're talking from the basis of science, um, it should be the great equalizer, even though I saw that it wasn't. And we had a much different reaction. We started talking about female sexuality. Interesting. Let's get into it a little bit more. So, yeah. I mean, I, I know the business model, I, I know nothing about selling pharmaceuticals, but, but what I, the crude understanding I have of the business is you invest kind of a truckload of money in, mm. in research and, and then you go through a bunch of trials and then hopefully you get approval to sell the drug. And, and that's when the real payday hits. I mean, am, yes. am I getting it basically right or what am I missing? basically just more, there needed to be more torture in your voice for how hard the process is. Um, so no, you're absolutely right. You invest in, you know, it's very capital intensive. Um, it is very time consuming. You're doing, you know, all sorts of trials that go through various phases, one, two, three, you're putting it out in the intend to treat population. And once you gather all that data, you're going to the FDA and ultimately going through an approval process as well, which was complicated for this drug. Um, it was very complicated. So tell me about raising money for this company. How did you, how did you raise money? <laughs> well, I, it, I'm always in pink. So if you can imagine me in hot pink in front of a room of you know blue and gray suits, you now have the mental picture of what it was like for me to uh, raise money and to start to talk about sex. In, in all candor, John, like the room would start to giggle usually um, at the beginning. There was sort of this discomfort that came over the room. And over time, I think I taught myself that I had to start off with the brain scan studies. So we know from brain scans that for a, some subset of women, their lack of interest in sex is biological. And we can show that difference on brain scans. And I would start there. And I would get everybody comfortable that we were just there talking about the biology of sex. But it was that was um, learned over time. It, it, you had to have a certain finesse to talk about this as you were raising money. And I can't say that, you know, everybody was on board with it because of their own discomfort with talking about it. Isn't that interesting? So was there a, I mean, tell me about the rounds. Did you go through a, a yeah. friends and family round and then a, a series? I did. Like, what, what did that all look like? I, I did. I did. Yep. I, so, um, so we went through a series B with this and, um, yeah, it, it was friends and family first who believed in me, believed in the mission and I was fortunate. So I almost have to back up to my first company, um, that I built from scratch slate pharmaceuticals. Cause that was really going through having people early invest, raise those rounds, finding people. And my path was not the conventional one, especially for pharma, which is so capital intensive because of the subject matter that I was in, I wasn't getting traditional VC funding. And probably if you look at me, I don't look like a classic pharma CEO. I'm a woman in a male dominated industry. So I really cultivated an incredible national network of high net worth individuals and family offices. And they came along with me on the ride as I built this company for men. And when I saw this emergent science for women and wanted to go there, 
I basically, we cashed them out, sold the business, turned around and said, you're going with me again. So by the time I'd gotten to Sprout, I'd already built um, credibility with a big investment group who had done well on my first exit and were now going on the ride with me for the second time. What would what advice would you give a, a young female entrepreneur who's thinking about raising money, but is a, is a little bit concerned you know, about diluting themselves. So it's yeah. the kind of, they, they get the fact that every round they, they, they get a smaller and smaller chunk of the sure. company and, and maybe they're having second thoughts and say, well, do I really want to become a kind of a minority owner in a business I started? Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I, I would say um, so many points on this because I do think we celebrate fundraising today as almost that's a, that's a defining moment of success. And while it's great, and yes, people have bet on you, it is the moment that abject terror <laughs> should begin because you need to pay that back and then some. So, you know, one, I think there's almost too much celebration in the fundraising today, um, as opposed to really looking at the longer term consequences. And I think that, that venture capital is not necessarily the right kind of capital for everybody at the outset. Like there does, you know, there has to be that friends and family who come in and then you're often looking at angels and then you're evolving to venture so that you're not prematurely giving up too much of your piece of the pie. All of that said, um, I'm, I'm gonna get this phrase wrong, but I love an entrepreneur, um, um, Fabio, who says like, I would rather have a, a big piece of a watermelon than 100% of a grape. Right. And so you do have to have an appreciation that over time you are going to dilute down, but you're going to have scaled it uh, to such a different magnitude that your ownership is going to be mean more meaningful. It's so interesting. We're having this conversation right now because literally an hour ago I was talking uh, to somebody, uh, an indirect uh, relation to a CEO who built a, a very large uh, company, hundred hundred million dollar plus company who has just been removed uh by an outside uh, bankruptcy mm -hmm. judge who basically is, is putting the company into a, into a controlled wind down. Um, and, and he had no control over that, even though he was the founder of the business. How, how did you reconcile the fact that as you grew and take on more and more investors, they had the power to kick you out? Or did they? Maybe you could, maybe you could clear, clarify if, uh, if I'm wrong. Listen, I think welcome to reality uh, that you are on the hook to perform. And I talk to um, young founders about this who believe it's their company. You know, this is my company. Actually, as soon as you start taking other people's money, it's your shareholders company. And I think that can't be lost. Um, so there is a responsibility. It is very it, it actually highlights the importance of being selective in terms of who you bring in, who you take money from. My number one mistake, early days, slate, I took money from the wrong group. Like we could not have been further apart in terms of philosophy on compensation of employees, how we treat people, mission. Um, that was really an important early lesson because it almost crippled the business because we had such a departure of thought. And, and at that time, you know, here I am scrapping it. I'd bootstrapped it. I'd raised money through friends and family. I'm, I'm moving along sort of in the continuum, really wanting to scale. And at that moment, when somebody's willing to write you a check, you have to remember that you're choosing to. So I think in circumstances where that happens, you might not have chosen the right investor for you who really understands your mission, 
and where you want to take the company. And how are you vetting for alignment around mission and values? I mean, what, what tips could you give another entrepreneur? Again, maybe raising their first round of, of family uh, and friends yeah. money. How do, you, how do you vet the alignment? Honestly, spend a lot of time together. It's not unlike dating. It's really true. Don't see them once, see them more than once. Wait to see, you know, what comes out over the succession of multiple meetings. I had, this is another story, early days, first startup, um, had a venture group who wanted to come in and write me a big check. And I had the dilemma, do I really want this much money? Do I need this much money? All of the dilution dilemma that you were talking about. And it was so interesting. We had a company culture in which we had lunch together every day. We were small at the time, probably 20 people, and we had glass table lunches. And it was our attempt to um, not have so many meetings over the course of the day, but all be on the same page. So perfect. I had him in. I said, hey, come join the rest of the company for lunch, because culturally, that's who we were. And I happened to have a sales group in for training, and he just went after one of my salespeople, like asking questions, relentless, um, rude uh, cynical. And just that interaction, he walked out the door and I said, I don't care what size check he's writing. I'm never taking his money. And I really had to, you know, that was, that was somebody who'd knocked with a really big check. That's a hard decision, but I think it is such an important one for founders to make. Interesting. So let's go back to the story of Addy and Sprout. So Sprout's the company, Addy's the product, the, what the yes. media characterizes the female Viagra. Sure. Um, you had, you'd gone through all the trials um, and eventually I think the FDA actually did approve the drug. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So yeah, then so what? We, I mean, what was yeah. the next sort of big milestone? <laughs> so we had an interesting journey through the FDA. This was a, um, I had gotten rejected um, having met all my endpoints in clinical trials, and I'd made a decision to dispute the FDA, uh, which is, I call it the road less traveled. It <laughs> is a, a path that you can take, but it is a road less traveled. And a lot of that was because, you know, at the end, everything, probably all of our decisions in life come down to sort of risk and benefit. Um, and if you assign no value to the benefit of something, then any risk would be too great. And I think that's what was happening here is we were really misunderstanding the benefit um, for women who lived with this condition of the impact in their lives. So to the FDA's credit, they opened their doors. They had a lot of public hearings on this, um, you know, listened to patients directly. And once they did that, they held a different public meeting, got all these scientific experts to come in and weigh in on our data. And when they did that, it, it was to inform their final decision. So it wasn't their final decision, but those experts voted overwhelmingly on the basis of science to approve the drug. When that moment happened, all the big companies, big pharma, if you will, got religion. Like, holy cow, she's going to do it. Like, She's going to get this drug approved. And that's when they all sort of entered the equation and started having um, buyout discussions with us. And was it your intent always to, once it was approved, sell out to someone with some distribution? Or, or had, had you thought about potentially even taking the drug to market with your own sales force? And I mean, I don't, again, I don't know the market, so yeah. maybe it's an ignorant question. So listen, no, 100%, I had a plan to go it alone. You always have to have that plan because you don't know what's coming, right? As a founder, you better be planning for the eventuality of you taking it to market. I did, of course, have the dream, the bigger dream of, you know, my baby, Addie, being marched across the globe. And, you know, to have the deep resources of a big company that would make it 
broadly and affordably accessible to women, that was really the dream realized. And that was the sort of trigger in ultimately making the decision to sell. So who was the first pharmaceutical that approached you? Um, I won't name other names of who didn't get it. That would probably, that would be bad to say who I, who I didn't um, end up marrying. Uh, but the company that I did sell it to is Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Got it. So, so is it fair to say then, if we don't want to name names, but there were yeah. other you know, big kind of yes. household names that, that approached yeah. you? Three. And three. I think three in the final mix. Yes. Got it. So, so Valiant and one other and two others. Two others. Mm-hmm. I can add up to three, I, th- I think. <laughs> okay. So, so we've got Valiant and two others. Um, I mean, at this point, have you hired an investment banker to sort of represent you? Or are you directly dealing with the, these companies yourself? No, I did. I hired an investment bankers. When, when curiosity came to the table, um, I did get an investment bank to help run the process. Uh, I needed, I think, that discipline in there and, and, um, and was very deliberate in that selection as well. Um, I think it's so important that there's that hunger in the bank that they get it, not unlike how you pick your investors, you know, how do you pick the banker that you're going to work with who really is passionate about the business and about the long-term potential of the business. Got it. So you've got a banker to represent you engaged in the process. You're talking yeah. to these three, three companies. Did you get three letters of intent? Like how did you, did you kind of play one off the other? How did, how far down the road did you go with <laughs> Yeah, no, um, there was, there's definitely, um, you know, a little bit of a, of a race between them. And the, what ultimately made my selection so clear uh, with Valiant is that um, th- not only was it, you know, with all of them, where was the capacity to march across the globe and, and do all of those things, but in their particular case, uh, they had a business that built platforms in certain categories. So their offer was also to come in and build a women's health platform. And I'm deeply passionate about that. So they would have the resources to go acquire other drugs that I was interested in and put it in under my platform with my team in tow. And you know, this was the, the, early, the early blood, sweat and tears team um, who'd gotten it to approval. And so it meant so much to me for them to be able to stay under that particular offer. Now, it didn't actually end up playing out that way, um, ultimately, but that was really how they emerged the winner. What were the different, like, the, like other than the, the fact that Valiant was will, willing to put in the, the women's health platform or build a women's health platform, what were the other kind of material deal terms that, that differed between the three? I mean, obviously, the price was one. Um, yeah, pr- price, was, um, price was one. But I think that you know there was a, a the the price was based on um, some pretty rigorous third party uh, forecasting work, and obviously as you do deal diligence with companies that are coming in to acquire you, not only have you done work in forecasting, but they're going to vet that through you know the third party group that they most trust, and those groups were aligned as they looked at the the potential for Addy in the market. So the the price the number wasn't really that dissimilar Hmm. between those groups. So what really did become important to me was that ability for the team to stay um, and expand it more broadly in women's health. You know, when I went into this category, I was sort of running in where others were running away. And I had been in men's health and, you know, there were a lot of resources um, poured into that category. Um, And yet in women's health, what used to be a banner for companies were in women's health had sort of disappeared. And so the commitment to return to that and to invest particularly in that area meant a lot to me personally as the founder. 
Did you have any revenue when you sold the company? We did not. So we sold the company. Um, in my previous company, we did. Uh, but in, in this company, they wanted to take it out of the gate with launch. So they bought it. We got the drug approved. We had been in these discussions after that public meeting I talked about. The drug then ultimately got the FDA's weigh-in where they approved it. And we announced um, just days later that we'd sold the business. And, and, I, and I mean, the, the numbers are public. It was a cash deal. Maybe talk about what the actual sure. amount was and how it was paid out, that kind of stuff. Sure. So um, cash up front of a billion dollars. That's with a B. That's with a B. And then a structured transaction in which we participated in a royalty stream. Um, we went the distance with them. There was a period of time in which um, we weren't taking royalties. And then ultimately, um, royalties kicked in for all of our shareholder group. It's the same as I had set up my my last deal, um, in which there was an upfront payment and then a structured piece of the transaction with payouts down the line. So the royalty piece is, is at risk. You're kind of trusting sure. Valiant to take the thing to market effectively, and if they don't, well, that's too bad. There, there's no, uh, there's no like you don't have any any way to come back at them if they don't launch the product, or do you? Oh yes. Oh, <laughs> so I will There's tell recourse. you that is yeah, and I'll and and I will say to you, in fact, if you look through um, the negotiation and the deal points that were the most difficult to work through, most commonly when you have a structured part of your transaction, the language boilerplate language we'll call it is typically a best efforts clause. Like we'll we'll make our best efforts. That's pretty darn broad. If things go sideways and they're not, you know, they're shelving it, they're not putting the attention behind it that you think it deserves. So for us, a best efforts clause was not good enough. And so we put really uh, quite a bit of rigor around performance obligations, a, a lot of specificity about what those performance obligations would be so that in effect, if they didn't do that, they would be in breach of contract and we would have, um, we would have recourse for that. I mean, how did you do that with, I mean, Valiant must have lawyered up to the nth degree and, and, and a lot of $800 an hour Manhattan <laughs> lawyers. How yeah. did you, how did you push back against what they would have, I mean, I'm sure out of the gate, they just sure. said, there's no way we, we just can't make those commitments. And you know what, if you have as the founder planned on the go it alone strategy, then you will be, um, much more what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> you'll, you'll have that resolve. Like, okay, I'll do it myself. Okay. It, 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 there are some things that you just have to have that confidence because you do have a plan um, that you're not going to waver on. And for us, that was one that we weren't going to waver on. It doesn't mean there weren't compromises, make no mistake. Um, but I would say that we too lawyered up and we talked just a minute about the banker, you know, who did I get involved in terms of a banker in the sale process? But I would say the most instrumental person um, in terms of an advisor as you're going through an M&A process or anything else is actually your transaction counsel. The they are your most important asset. Yes. And I used two lawyers um, that were outstanding. I think I've recommended them to everybody I know since that they've kept busy. Give them a plug now. <laughs> Oh, they're wonderful. So uh, Steve Catran and Matt Hurd out of Sullivan and Cromwell. Phenomenal, phenomenal transaction counsel. There you go, Steve and Matt. Perfect. Well, um, so you, you've got this, uh, 
got a bet on the table with Valiant saying that you're going to give us a billion dollars cash up front and then yep. the, the kind of downstream payment or royalty for, for the amount of drugs they sell in, into the future. Right. Um, how, how did your, your investors feel about the offer from Valiant? I think they were excited. I mean, it was, you know, a billion with a B. Um, not that we didn't think that was reflective of the uh, forecast and, and fair, but also the ability to participate in the downstream. And they valued, just as I did, the idea that I would be staying at the helm with an incredible team who surrounded me to build out a broader women's health franchise. So I think that, you know, our company um, was very mission driven. You know, we didn't do this to create the next blockbuster drug. We did it because we believed women with a medical condition deserved access to medical treatment. That philosophy really went to our core. And so in this offer, we also had that piece of the equation satisfied for us. So they were excited um, for that and excited to continue to participate in Addie's success. Roughly how much additional compensation were you able to get from Valiant with the kind of horse race between the three other, uh, two other providers or two other suitors? We definitely moved up from the beginning. Um, I won't, I won't disclose first offer, last offer, uh, but we, we definitely um, moved that up. I think that's important to have, you know, it, look, everybody wants it come down to that uh, between, you know, at least you've got two in the game um, so that you've got the, that possibility but again, because we were entering into a structured transaction with them, it's got to be win-win. Like, you know, I, you can't, I say this all the time to founders who are looking to sell their business. And I, I don't even know who I can attribute this expression to originally, but, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And if you go from a basis of greed in terms of trying to think you're going to extract every last dime at the upfront, nobody's going to ultimately win. You would, if you believe in it, if you believe in your baby, you're so much better taking money off the table. That's fair to you and to all of your investors for how you've de-risked it to that point. But then actually going on the ride with them and, and having aligned incentives. I, I find that those deals work out the best. So in Valiant's case, um, clearly people listening will have heard the name Valiant and think, oh, maybe I've heard something odd about that company. Because they've gone through the ringer in terms of totally. publicity, right? I mean, totally. What, what before I ask you sort of how that all came out? I mean, what vetting did you do of them, uh, and how did that vetting sort of turn out before before consummating yeah. the deal? Look, you know, the at the time in which we were working with them, they were a darling mm -hmm. in the industry. So uh, I'm going to get it about two hundred and forty dollars a share. I think that they're probably in the low double digits today. Did they offer um, you shares for your deal? Oh, of course. <laughs> Glad you didn't take those. Take cash always because you're not in charge of that enterprise. So yeah, that's a for sure for everybody um, in, in both transactions, important for us that it not be a, um, a stock deal at the outset. But, but um, you know, from, from that, but from where that company was, they had, they had been highly acquisitive. They'd gone out, they'd gotten all of these uh, different drugs. And um, they, they had a lot of drugs that were later in the life cycle and in crowded markets. So this was, Addy was different for them and intentionally different. So how do we take a drug that's front and center and build it from scratch? 
And how do we do that with somebody who's an operator who's done it before? And so that, you know, the spirit of it was all right um, for why they were choosing it, you know, what the efforts were that they would put behind it. And the fact that, again, that acquisition model would still be in place so that they would acquire those other female health brands. What I could have never predicted is between the time we announced the deal and, and ultimately it closed, um, you know, we were on like the rocket ship of building out, hiring a sales force, everything else. The deal closed. And literally within weeks of that closing, they had news that hit, um, that questioned a relationship that they had or disclosure they had with a pharmacy. And that's when, you know, for them, things really um, went sideways in terms of, you know, the attention that it, it took from this newly acquired drug and everything else. And so ultimately their plans changed. Um, and when their plans changed, the deal didn't exactly go the way that we had originally envisioned. Because I, I mean, I think they were there was something about uh, gouging prices on drugs that were you know, throwing up the price of drugs by you know I think Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and her she mentioned Valiant. So these guys really hit the mainstream press as being the kind of persona non grata. They have had a lot of press. I mean, those things are still all you know being looked into. So I can't comment on it from their perspective, but for sure. They had a lot of press and ultimately a change in leadership. Um, so they, the CEO who was there at the time when I did the deal has subsequently been changed. And they've gone through a lot of changes, including divesting certain assets and choosing key therapeutic areas they're going to focus on. And is one of those areas women's health? It is not. Hmm. So what were the big changes that, that happened and how did they affect you guys? Oh, heartbreak. <laughs> so look, it, you know, from the organization perspective, they were dealing with a lot. And again, this was different for them in terms of the, it wasn't kind of their classic acquisition. Um, and it was literally weeks into, you know, having this officially as closed and, and their own and owning it, that all of this um, news hit and the organization focused on other things. And so as a result, some of those performance obligations I mentioned hadn't been met. Um, so promotional spend, educational spend, number of salespeople behind the brand. So the shareholder group did enter a lawsuit that's public knowledge um, with Valiant on the basis of those performance obligations. Again, everybody wanted this to be win-win, um, Valiant included. But because of what was going on in their business, it just wasn't receiving the attention that it deserved. Has that shareholders dispute been uh, resolved or is it still in the... We're, we're working on it right now. And I think, again, there is a um, Valiant announced just recently their intention that they'd signed an agreement um, to give back Addy to uh, the, the former shareholder group. And the former shareholder group in exchange would would relinquish their ongoing performance obligations as well as the lawsuit. So that deal has not closed. Um, I can't comment on it because it's not a done deal yet. But uh, in the eventuality that it is, you'll have me back on and we'll talk about it. Yeah, that sounds great. So under, <laughs> un, if that deal were to go through, you, you guys, the shareholders, get to keep the billion and you get the drug back? That's right. So no change in the upfront payment, but the ability 
um, to have the drug back in our possession and, and really work on, again, go back to that original mission, which is women having broad and affordable access to it. You know, Valiant was making efforts, um, but just the nature of everything that was going on in the business and where they had to put their time, their energies, and their priorities, this was a different uh, brand for them. It wasn't in one of their already well-established therapeutic categories. So as their new CEO has come in, you know, I think he's gone a long way to focus on kind of three core areas of business and the patients that, that those businesses serve. You know, I can tell in your voice, you're obviously a very passion-driven, uh, <laughs> vision-driven entrepreneur. And for most of the investors that I've ever come into contact with, certainly sophisticated uh, venture capitalists that you would have had at the table yeah. in Sprout, you know, I think of them as, as largely mercenaries uh, <laughs> because they have to be, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're a custodian of, of many yeah. of the investors in their firms. How do you, I mean, what advice would you give an entrepreneur who is trying to reconcile uh, being a passion-driven entrepreneur and doing the right thing by their employees, et cetera, et cetera, and their vision with what essentially are mercenaries that are, mm -hmm. are at the table? What, how do you deal with that? Well, first thing, first, I, I just, this is making me laugh because it is so true. I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on the data all day long. Bring it on. We can talk in all evidence-based, but it's some, some things you can't when you're first to market, when you're paving new ground. And for that, you know, there is an unwillingness to compromise on the social fabric of a company. Companies aren't managed by spreadsheet. I think, I think Indra Noy said that at a, a conference I was at from, from Pepsi, like companies are not managed by the spreadsheet. Companies are a function of people executing. And that is, again, I'm going to go back like a broken record. That is part of how you must select people. If there is no appreciation whatsoever to the culture you're creating or the mission that you're on, they are not the right investor for you. Find the next one because they're out there and it will connect with somebody. The idea, you know, if I look at the investors who came behind me, I now have this incredible national network of people who you know, see the world in many ways through the same lens that I do. They want to see the kind of products that I want to see brought to market. They want to see that investment made. And now today, you know, in my in my new venture inside of the pink ceiling and our pinkubator, it's wonderful to have that national network because not only are we providing them funding, but I know others who will also be the right the right kind of investors for them to come in. Awesome. Let's talk about the new business. So it's called yeah. the pink ceiling. Yes. I'm assuming that's the glass ceiling you're <laughs> busting through. But Mine happens to be pink. Yeah, okay. I hit I hit many a pink ceiling over the course of my career. So I think there are a lot of pink ceilings still to shatter. Got it. And, and you've got, so you've got the pink ceiling. Yes. And the pinkubator. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> With rosé on tap, no, no yeah. less. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, look, there's an environment. I, what, thank you for the comment on the passion. I am, you know, you spend so much time at work, you better be passionate about what you do. And I think what has always sort of torn the bedsheets off in the morning for me is fighting the injustices. And I think in a lot of my career in pharma, it was the injustice in probably, um, in, you know, innovation in women's health. If I look at, as I sort of had that exit and this ability to define what was next, I think the injustice I fight today are for the female founders like me. And one, their lack of access to capital. Two, and I think importantly, their lack of access to mentorship. 
So that's what we do today. We pick companies mostly in the health tech space. We make early bets on them. They're either female-led or female-focused. So if guys are doing great work for women, come to the pinky bait or two. Um, and then we put a lot of our effort into, with a team that has surrounded me through my past two companies, you know, rolling our sleeves up with them and helping pull them to market faster than we got there ourselves because they're not stepping on the same minds we did. Fantastic. Where can people learn about The Pink Ceiling? Is there a URL? or? Yeah, just the thepinkceiling.com. Awesome. Cindy Whitehead, this has been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.